This morning we're in John 5, 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted son, the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and there will come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You're in John chapter 5. I was, I was telling our, uh, our worship team this morning, we are going to get a, well maybe I was praying it, but they were there. Uh, we are going to get a full dose of Jesus this morning. I mean, it is all about Jesus. You're going to have Jesus' words telling the Jewish religious leaders who he is. And so, you know, there's times whenever we're preaching a sermon, like Blake had one last week where it was a narrative, and he, he was able to, to bring to light some, some things from that. This morning is pretty straightforward. How could I possibly improve upon the speech of Jesus? That's hard. I'm going to tell you what Jesus says about himself, and we'll talk about it as a, as a disclosure uh, of who he is. But I was telling Natalie this morning, I, I want to be very careful. I can't add to this. I'm not going to make this more than what it is. Because Jesus, what he does here is he says, point blank, I am God in the flesh. One of the most controversial topics throughout history has revolved around the true identity of Jesus. I mean, who was this man? Many answers have been given to that question. If you go all the way back to the life of Jesus, the Jewish people had their own ideas. They tried to answer that question. Some said that he was a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, verse 48, says the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you, talking to Jesus, are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, when they say you're a Samaritan, they're not talking about the place of origin. They're not saying that Jesus was from Samaria, as we learned about uh, in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. But what we know is that it's a very condescending term coming from a Jew. And so when they tell Jesus you are a Samaritan. They're calling him unclean. They're calling him unworthy. And they, ha- they don't want anything to do with him. 
It's a racist term that they're applying to Jesus. You saw there at the end of verse 48 that they said he, has, he had a demon. They also said that in John chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Again, in John chapter 8, verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. So who is Jesus? Some said he's demon-possessed. Others said that he was insane. In John chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, John records there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Still others, instead of attacking Jesus based on demon possession or his sanity, they attacked him personally. And so we'll see when we get to John chapter 8 that they bring up the scandalous birth of Jesus. And they say that he is of illegitimate birth. In John chapter 8, verses 39 through 41, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And what he's doing there is he's pointing out to them that they're saying their father is Abraham, and he will go on right after this and say, your father is Satan. You are doing the works of your father, Satan. And then right after that, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. And so you see, there, there was a scandal, right? I mean, if you think about the birth of Christ, we know that, that he was born to the Virgin Mary. But if you think about whether or not you were in that population, you know that there were some people questioning that. What really happened? Who's your real father, Jesus? And that's what they're doing here. They're attacking him personally, saying, you're nothing special. In fact, you don't even know who your father is. But we know who our father is. If we fast forward through history to the 1700s and 1800s, the challengers to Christianity denied the deity of Christ. They declared that he was a great human moral teacher. The common opposition held that Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived and who served as an example of faith not the object of faith. As you move into the 1900s, man determined that the true identity of Jesus was up to each individual and that we could all determine our own reality. And that is still held today for the most part. Jesus is to you whatever you decide. He is a construct of the mind that is created so that you might cope through life. In the fifth chapter of this gospel, John records the words between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders following that miraculous healing that Jesus performed on the Sabbath. And we saw that last week. Blake walked us through that passage as this man who was an invalid for 38 years was healed. And when that man tells the Jews, the man that healed me, 
he told me to walk again. The Jewish religious leaders looked past the fact of the miraculous healing. They missed out on the work of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and all they had to say was, who told you to walk? We were talking about that in our community group this week. That is mind-boggling to hear, I've been healed, and the guy that healed me told me to walk again, and all they had to say was, well, who told you to walk? That's where we find ourselves this morning. We're right in the middle of this healing that led to this conversation. And this week, Jesus will flat out assault any false perception of who he is. He confronts it. And then next week, Blake's going to finish up this chapter. It's almost like a courtroom setting where Jesus will call on witnesses to his identity. As we look at the words recorded here, they don't leave any room for explanations such as Jesus was a good man or Jesus was a great teacher. As is often stated, after studying the passage we're going to look at today, we must conclude that Jesus was either a liar, a deceiver, he was a lunatic, or that he was telling the truth about who he is. Last week, Jesus made the first declaration making himself equal with God, where he said that I am the Son of God. And we saw at the very end of that passage in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This morning, we will see five more ways in which Jesus does just that. He will make himself equal with God. Now we know that with all those explanations to the identity of Christ, that there's another alternative. That's why John writes this gospel. So you'll see, this is almost a comprehensive, exhaustive case for the deity of Jesus Christ. John writes all of this stuff so that we may read this hear it spoken, believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in that, we would have eternal life. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He does a pretty good job here of covering all of his bases. We will see that Jesus is equal to God in works this morning. We will see that Jesus is equal to God in judgment in honor, in word, and in power. So first, let's look at Jesus equal to God in works. In verses 19 through 21. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So in the midst of the hatred that is shown to Jesus after he calls himself the Son of God, making himself equal to him, Jesus doesn't shy away. Jesus doesn't back down from the truth of who he is. Instead, he pushes even more into it. 
He is pressing the Jews about what they believe about him. He says, truly, truly, which is the strongest way possible for him to assure them that he's telling the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He's still defending that miraculous healing that he did on the Sabbath. So what he's saying is, I only do what my father has already been doing. In defense of his identity as God, he ties his work, his miraculous healing on that Sabbath to the work of his father. And then he takes it a step further and says, not only do I do this work, but whatever the father does, I do that as well. Whatever the father does, I do. Jesus is saying that in all works, the son is equal to the father, that he is God working. The reason behind this equality in works is because of that perfect unity that exists in the essence that the Son and the Father share. We learn in chapter 1 that the Son, the eternal Word, is both a member of the triune unity. We saw that He is God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is God, and that He's also separate from the other persons in that unity because He was with God. He is and was with. In verse 20, Jesus describes this perfect union as a union of love. He says the Father loves the Son, and out of this love, He shows Him all that He, the Father, is doing. So, while this miraculous work of restorative healing on the Sabbath surprised the Jews... Jesus is only doing what he's already seen his father do this this whole time. And then Jesus says, to really astonish them, that was nothing. He says that he will do even greater works than just a healing. And the reason for that was so that these people would marvel even more. That, That flies back. He's doing this so that people would see it and marvel. Don't you love when God shows off? There's going to be some some ways in which some of us in our church body are going to be, be able to share with all of you how God has done that recently. I look forward to that moment. Mark and Callie are going to come next week, and they're going to talk about how God showed off. How God, when, when, it, when they had no clear vision of what was going to happen, they had their own plan, God completely flipped it over and said, no, I've got something greater than what you've got in store. God loves to show off because He's good. He wants us to see that know that and believe that. So when Jesus here says that greater works than this healing am I going to do because I want you to marvel, I want you to see me for who I am. I want you to see me in all of my goodness. What are these greater works that he's referring to? Well, if you look in context, he says it's raising the dead and giving the dead life. 
Now, throughout Scripture, this is something that only God can do. So you imagine how the Jews might have reacted to that claim. Jesus is taking something that belongs to God and claiming it for himself and saying, I will be able to raise the dead and give life to them. If you look at the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, Moses speaking the word of the Lord says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver, deliver out of my hand. You go from that to the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians verse one, uh, chapter 1, verses 8-9. through nine. And Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who does what? Raises the dead. God is the one who raises the dead. God is the one who gives life. And Jesus tells this Jewish audience, I do the same thing. Because I am God. Jesus equals God in his works. He also equals God in his judgment. In verse 22 of chapter 5. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So consistent with His authority to grant life to whomever He wills, Jesus has also been given the authority to judge all men on the day of judgment. Again, this is a characteristic of God that Jesus claims for Himself. God is the one who serves as the judge of all the earth. In Genesis 18, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. In 1 Chronicles, David does the same thing. If you look at the Psalms, you'll see that throughout the whole, the whole book collection of the Psalms. That God is the one who is the judge of all the earth. And here Jesus says, the judge of all the earth has given all that authority to me. I am going to judge all men on the day of judgment. So yes, while it's true that He came to give life, so that man may have life and have it abundantly, it is also true that he will serve as judge on the last day. Because God, his Father, has given him that authority. Those who have denied him, who have not believed in his identity as a son of God, will be judged by him and will be found to be unrighteous. Those who have believed by the grace of God alone, Despite their unrighteousness, the judge will see them, us, who believe clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we will be found innocent. But he is the judge of all. Jesus is equal to God in his judgment. And as a natural progression of that, in verse 23, we see Jesus is equal to God in honor. I'll start back in verse 22 because this is one sentence. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Here's your purpose, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The reason that the Father has granted all authority to do the works that he does, to judge, is so that he may receive honor. The Son's honor is that natural progression. When you think about how he is equal to God in all things, then whoever is doing the works of God, whoever is judging as God would judge, that person deserves honor, the same honor that is due to the Father. The Jewish religious leaders believed that they were truly honoring God by rejecting this man, Jesus. I mean, you think about the claims that he's making. I do works on the Sabbath because the Father's doing work on the Sabbath. I'm going to judge all the earth one day. I am due honor just as the Father is due honor. That's blasphemy. That's what the Jews are thinking. Like, who is this guy to, to propel himself, to exalt himself, and tell us that we should be giving him honor? So the Jewish religious leaders say, we're actually honoring God by rejecting this imposter, Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus makes it clear here that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now one question we might ask ourselves is, does the Father lose out on anything when the Son gets glory, when the Son gets the honor. So if I'm a father and I have invested myself to my son and everybody recognizes the son, everybody praises the son, am I losing anything? Am I not getting what I deserve? When you think about this relationship between the father and son, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Paul talks about this issue specifically. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's stop there. Does that sound like honor? That every knee should bow to the Son. That every tongue confess, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, all will declare that the Son is worthy of this honor. And how does he finish that? To the glory of God the Father. You see, when the Son is glorified, the Father is also glorified. When the Son receives honor, the Father also receives honor. They are one, one essence. They are in perfect harmony. The Son physically is revealing to the world who God is. And so no, when the Son is getting honor and glory, so is the Father. Because they're one and the same. The same essence. His characteristics that are being identified and are being worshipped and praised, 
belong to the Father as well. He's revealing himself. The fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, of all this revelation of who God is and what his plans are, are manifested in the Son. So when you glorify the Son, when you honor the Son, the Father receives glory. He doesn't lose out on anything. Jesus is equal to God in honor. He's also equal to God in word. Verses 24 through 25, Jesus again using that term, truly, truly. He says that a lot in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here, Jesus equates his word with the word of the the one who sent him, his father. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes my word believes him who sent me because I am only speaking his words. Let me make that a little bit more clear because Jesus does that later on in chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 49 through 50, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. My words are his words. He is equal to God. This word that Jesus is referring to is his message of salvation. Jesus told this Jewish group of people that whoever heard this message and believed would have eternal life. All these claims that Jesus is making, you would, you would think that they would be received with joy, with appreciation. But to a group of people whose hearts are so hardened towards him, he gets nothing but animosity. He gets rejection. Jesus told them that the divinely appointed hour was both coming and was there when all of this would happen. This life would be given. People will will hear the Son's message of salvation, believe, and they will pass from their natural state of death into life. Now, there are a few ways to interpret that difficult saying there. Adam is smiling because he he knew I was going to talk about it. There's a couple of different ways to interpret this hour that is both here and is coming. I mean, what is that? Instead of going through all the many options, I'll I'll let you go home and study it for yourself. I'll just tell you where I fall after my study. I lean towards the hour that is present at that moment when Jesus said the hour is now here, that he's talking about this hour of spiritual resurrection. The hour is here where I will speak the message of salvation, man will hear it, man will believe it, and they will receive life, spiritual life. Well, then what is the hour to come? As Jesus goes on 
in our passage, and we're going to get there, I think it's referring to the physical resurrection. The hour is both here and is coming. When he says here, he's been talking this whole time about how people will hear his word and believe and they will have spiritual life. So I think that fits. And then when you look at the next three verses in verses 26 through 29, Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to do something better than that. I'm going to blow your minds. You're going to see physical people rise up out of the grave. So I think it's both here and coming. It is the fullness of the resurrection. It's not just some mystical, spiritual thing that happens. But there's a, a physical thing. I'll show you when we get there. So as we move to the following verses, Jesus concludes his declaration of equality with God in power. We've seen his equality in person. We saw that last week. He, made, he called himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God. We've seen equality in works. He's doing the same thing that his father does. We've seen his equality in judgment, that all authority from the father to judge has been given to the son. We've seen his equality in honor, that you can't honor the father without honoring the son, though many try to do that. Many will say, I believe in God, but this Jesus God I do not believe in. You can't have it that way. Scripture's clear. We've also seen his equality in word that whatever Jesus, the Son of God, speaks, he is speaking on behalf of the Father who sent him. Finally, he is equal in power. In verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is declaring his equality with God in power. What greater power is there than to be the source of all life? You and I, we do not have the power of life within us. We didn't just exist, but our our father and mother gave us life. But when you think about the son, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is. This life is self-contained. It comes from within him. That's just who he is. He lives. God is. I am. He also has the power to grant life, both physical and spiritual. We already saw that at the beginning of John's gospel. When we talk about the physical life, and we saw that nothing was created that was not created by him. He is the creator. He is the giver of life, physically and spiritually. Jesus then declares that he has the power to judge because he is the Son of Man. This was a reference to the title given to the Messiah in Daniel 7. Again, he is claiming deity. This is something, can you imagine? I I picture like the cartoon 
where you have like the cartoon character who gets angry and angry and like face fills up red and all of a sudden steam starts blowing out of the ears. I imagine the Jewish religious leaders were like that. They got veins sticking out of their forehead. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He just called himself the Messiah. He just called himself God. In this one conversation, Jesus has both referred to himself as the Son of God and the Son of Man. These were high, lofty terms. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am. Both would have been considered blasphemous unless it was true. So in anticipation of or possibly a reaction to their astonishment to this claim, Jesus tells them, don't marvel at that. Don't marvel at my teaching. And then he gives them something to be really astonished about. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, literally those who have passed away and have been buried, Those who have physically died will be raised from the dead by the power of his voice. Can you imagine that? I don't want to make light of death because I I, I know we have all been affected. I'll use personal example. My great-grandmother, Gigi is what we called her, she ended up shrinking down to like four foot six, lived to be about 90 years old. That would blow my mind to see Gigi walk in this door right now. Like, that's crazy. I looked up this morning. I wanted to give you, a, like, a statistic because I just, I thought it would be interesting. How many people have ever lived? Because, you know, when we think about this, for me, I naturally went to somebody that I know. Somebody that I know that passed away. What would that be like? But it isn't just the people I know. It isn't just the people in our community that have passed away. We're talking about all who have who are in the tombs, all who have died. 100 billion people is estimated that have lived and passed away. You have about 7.2 billion right now on the earth. So think about the world's population, 7.2 billion, 100 billion rising up out of the grave. Some of you are really into the walking dead. (laughs) Picture that. Guess what? This has already happened on a smaller scale. A shadow of what is to come. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. I want you to see this for your own eyes because when I was reading the Bible and I came across this for the first time, I was saying, how come nobody has ever shown me this? Because this is just mind-blowing. When we talk about the crucifixion and when Jesus died, a lot of us have heard how the veil was torn in the temple from top to bottom. But for some reason, all of my pastors kept leaving out the part that comes right after that, which is really cool. Matthew 27, we're going to start in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, I had to practice this this morning. I hope I can do it right. 
Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice the crying out of Christ. The loud voice. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I mean, that in and of itself is miraculous. And a lot of you know the, the, the theological implications behind that. How now we don't have to depend on a high priest among us, but we have a great high priest in Christ who has removed that veil so that we may come into the presence of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice that is not needed for us to go sacrifice a sheep, a goat, a pigeon. And then the earth shook and the rocks were split. And then look right after that. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that is, they died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Dead people rose from the grave physically, showed themselves, went into Jerusalem. That's the power of God Almighty in the flesh. Dead people rising at the, at the sound of his voice. Jesus concludes this declaration of deity with a statement that we would all do well to consider. All men will be resurrected. All men. Not just the saints. Here we were talking about the bodies of the saints. Those who have believed in faith. Those rose. But it says here that all will be resurrected. He said that those that did good will experience the resurrection of life. And those that did evil will experience the resurrection of judgment. Just to be clear, this is not referring to a salvation that is earned by doing good works. I mean, if you've been around us long enough, you know that we've seen in Scripture very clearly that that is not how salvation works. In Ephesians, we saw that we are saved by grace and not by works, so that no man may boast in their own works, but they, they would only boast in Christ alone. Even in John's Gospel, we've already seen that we become children of God, not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God and God alone. So then what is Jesus saying here then? Those that did good will experience the resurrection of life. It's simply going back to that fact that when you are saved, when you are redeemed, you should bear fruit. The Holy Spirit is working in you to sanctify you, to produce in you righteousness so that you may become more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you should have good works. 
It is evidence of your faith, not the means through which faith is given. So those of us who do good are because we've been saved by grace. Those of us who do good will experience the resurrection of life. But all men will be resurrected. Those who do evil, showing that their hearts have not been changed, they will experience the resurrection of judgment. This is the reality. All will be resurrected. The question is, what resurrection will you be facing? What resurrection will you get to experience? The answer to that question stems from what you believe about the identity of Jesus Christ. I hope you've seen this morning that the claims that Jesus made, they don't allow you to be neutral. You can't just say, I want to go to church and I believe in God. I know that God exists and that maybe he even created all things. But I don't know about this Jesus guy. I do good things. I'm a good person. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good employee. I do my best. Jesus says that I am God, and you have to deal with that. How are you going to, what are you going to do with that? When we started this, I told you, throughout John's gospel, he's going to say things and do things, and then you're going to see other people's responses to that, and then you're going to be left to answer the question, what am I going to do with that? Jesus didn't sugarcoat this. This isn't mysterious. This is simple language. I am God. Those who believe that will be saved from their sins through his sacrifice. Those who do not believe that, those who believe that he is anything but that, anything short of that, the resurrection of judgment will be experienced. For those of us who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God come in the flesh, let us consider how we might lack faith in our day-to-day decisions and actions. You know, one of the things that I struggle with, uh, sometimes I find myself believing that Christ paved the way for me, that He sacrificed Himself from, for my sin, my sin nature, but I, I sometimes struggle with believing that He has the same power to deliver me from my sins today. The actions that he's paid the price for them, but sometimes I feel like I'm still stuck there. I find myself sometimes longing to be with Christ in the future, knowing that this day is coming, and fail to rest in the fact that he has sent his spirit to be with me now, today. He is the ever-present God in His works, in His authority to judge, in His honor, His word, and His power. Maybe there's some aspect there of, of His characteristics, of His identity that we struggle with believing. Maybe go through that. Go through that list of things. 
Who does Jesus say he is? Do I believe that? What do my actions say about what I believe? What do my thoughts say about what I believe? Personal confession, that honor deal, I struggle with that. I know because of my thoughts. My thoughts tell me that I deserve the honor. My thoughts tell me that I know I should live my life as an honor to Him, but I want to do my own thing in this moment. I want to think my own thoughts right now, and I don't want to think righteous and pure thoughts. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to inconvenience myself for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of of knowing that people will hear and understand the gospel. I just want to sit at home. I want to get away from people. I want to withdraw. I'm so frustrated with people right now. I just want to back away. That's me. That's one of the things that I struggle with. This is who Jesus is, and I struggle with really believing that. Where are you? And if there's anyone here who has not believed, who has tried to remain neutral, try to get by, I hope you've seen this morning that that's not an option. I mean, Jesus said that he was going to raise people from the dead. Okay, he's either crazy, he's lying, or he's telling the truth. What do you believe? Who's Jesus? Jesus.